Thanks for joining us on this week's episode, where we watch and discuss the Best Picture nominees from the 83rd Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. We're in 2010, a more recent year. Hooray. I always find that when we can remember going to see the movies in the theater, it makes for a different episode feel. Definitely. I think it's influenced how I've thought about these films a little bit, sort of my current viewing and also how I remember it from 2010 or close thereafter. I didn't see all these in the theater. I'm intrigued to see if there's a marked difference in how you feel about the movies. We'll find out. We'll find out. Yeah, I think we mentioned at the end of our last episode that you had seen all but one of these films, mm-hmm. and I'd seen six out of the ten, so a number of these are rewatches for both of us. It's always an interesting experience to rewatch. So, before we get into the movies, we should talk about the events of the year, because 2010, who can even remember that far back? It was a census year, always mm-hmm. a good time in the States. Fill out your census. It's important. Yes. Also this year, the Affordable Care Act, the most significant and kind of only significant legislative achievement of Obama's presidency happens. So that's big news. Very cool. Yep. He spent all of his political capital getting that done. Should he have done climate change instead? Who's to say? Tough call. Hard to say, but yep. (laughs) In international news, this was the year they had that very severe earthquake in Haiti. Over 316,000 people died. Absolutely crazy. incomprehensible. Big earthquake year, because there was also one of the strongest ever recorded earthquakes in Chile that year, but luckily it was not in as populated of an area, so fewer people died. In other seismic activity news, this was the year that that volcano in Iceland erupted and sent clouds of smoke over all of Europe, and no one could travel by air. Yeah. We'd say the name of the volcano, but we can't. Yeah. Uh, Also this year, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in the Gulf, the worst marine oil spill in history. And, you know, thank God there were such severe consequences that now BP doesn't even exist. Huh? Yes. As (laughs) as I remember, the CEO or head of BP came on the news and said he was totally gutted (laughs) by what had happened. Yeah. So thanks for that, BP. Great work, guys. Yeah. And then finally, this year was the start of the Arab Spring. We have some technology news. This was the first year that Apple released the iPad. Wow. Whoa. Whoa. (laughs) I mean, we'll talk about it. I think we said when we did, what year was it that Silver Linings Playbook came out in? But I was like, they had like an iPod Touch. 14, I I think, maybe. Yeah. And my thought was, how has technology progressed so much in so few years. It's technology. It's an exponential curve. Similarly, there were a couple of films this year where people had flip phones, and I was like, oh, flip phones. (laughs) A different era. This is also the year that Instagram launches. Also, hey, check out our Instagram. Yeah, guys, we have an Instagram. Get over there. Oscar's wrong pod. We've got some cool stuff happening. There's sports news this year. We always like to mention it because we are Olympics fiends, but there was Mm -hmm. a 2010 Vancouver Winter Olympics this year. And this was also the year of the 2010 South Africa World Cup. Mm -hmm. Maddie and I are divided on Vuvuzelas. (laughs) A divisive instrument, to be sure. I'm pro. She's con. (laughs) Also this year, the television show Lost ends, and everyone is real mad about it. Big mad. That was a whole moment. I personally have only seen the first season of Lost, so I didn't get to partake, but watching people be mad was pretty funny. I mean, honestly, it's always fun to watch people be mad about shows they love that end poorly. I got that with Game of Thrones, what (laughs) Sopranos. It's always a good time. Yeah, that's interesting because obviously some of those are more divisive than others. It seemed like pretty much universally people hated the ending of Lost. So good times. And then finally... (sighs) We've got building news. Yes. We love building news. Always excited to have building news. And we pledge to you, the listener, that we will be bringing you as much building news as we possibly can. As we can. As we find it, we will include it. This is the year that the Burj Khalifa, currently the world's tallest building, 
opens. Mm-hmm. And I really think that America needs to throw its hat back in the ring of the tallest building competition. Why are we not building a taller building right now? I think it's un-American, frankly. I absolutely couldn't agree more. Okay, so that's the news. But what were the top five highest grossing movies of the year? Well, number one was Toy Story 3. Number two, Alice in Wonderland. Number three, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, part one. Number four, Inception. And number five, Shrek Forever After. Fascinating. There's definitely a focus on family films in this top five. But we do have two of these that are nominees. So that's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. So we have to talk about what won this year. Yes. So again, this is a a 10-year nominee. So it's a bracket episode. So we'll dive right into what won. And what won this year was The King's Speech. Was the consensus at the time? You know, I think people were not particularly surprised, though I don't think they were particularly thrilled either. It was sort of the consensus win of perhaps the less adventurous members of the Academy. There mm-hmm. are some things that I think at the time people thought were probably more, uh, how to describe them, a little edgier, a little more like creatively out there that they perhaps would have liked to see win. But I don't think there was much you know, shock at the King's speech. The King's speech was like a pitch right down the Academy voters' middle. Yes. And they hit it at the park. They sure did. So what's the historical consensus now? I think people are not happy about it. I think folks seem to think something like maybe the social network should have won. I feel like this, not to get ahead of ourselves, is one of these cases where a movie won and people are like, oh, it's awful. And then you watch and you're like, it's not awful. It's not that bad. <laughs> it's a movie that got screwed by the fact that it won against yeah. things that people like more. But like, you know, we'll talk about it. It's not yeah. that bad. <laughs> not to give away my feelings, but yeah. we aren't going to really talk about any other movies this year. We're going to stick to the 10 nominees. That's discipline, folks. We haven't done yeah. that in quite some time. You know, we'll look at other best of lists. Obviously, this year is too late to get incorporated into the AFI because they refuse to yeah. update their list in a timely fashion. Are we going to have to take to the streets or something? What's going on, AFI? Who's to say? But we did find a website uh, called criticstop10.com where they basically, like Metacritic, have assessed a number of critics' top 10 lists and sort of compiled them into the overall top 10 of the year. And the overall top 10 they came to from the critics' list matches up one-to-one with the nominees. Incredible work, Academy. You've never had your finger on the pulse of the critics so closely as you did in this year. We decided this list was fine. Yeah. Okay. So this is our usual uh, sort of smaller bracket formation. We're not doing a full tournament style, but what mm-hmm. we have done is attribute to each of these movies their Rotten Tomato score, seed them from one through 10, and then match up, you know, one and 10, two and nine, etc. We will go through our matchups and pick a winner and a loser of each one. Hopefully we will agree, but if we don't, we will somehow find a way to pick between the winner and the loser. And then in this episode, we will talk about our five losers. And next time we will talk about our five winners. All right, let's dive right in. (laughs) First up, we have our number one seed, Toy Story 3, a family film about a group of toys escaping from a daycare center. It stars Tom Hanks, Tim Allen, and Joan Cusack. It's directed by Lee Unkrich, written by Michael Arndt. It's nominated for five, and it won two. Best Animated Feature and Best Original Song. And this faces off against our 10 seed, Black Swan, a psychological horror film about a ballerina taking on the lead role in Swan Lake. It stars Natalie Portman, Mila Kunis, and Vincent Cassell. Directed by Darren Aronofsky and written by Mark Heyman, Andres Heinz, and John McLaughlin. It was nominated for five, and it won one. Best Actress, Natalie Portman. Okay. One, One, two, two, three. three. Toy Toy Story Story 3. There you go. Okay. Next up is our number two seed, The Social Network, a drama about the creation of Facebook. It stars Jesse Eisenberg, Andrew Garfield, Justin Timberlake, and Army Hammer. It's directed by David Fincher, written by Aaron Sorkin. It was nominated for eight, and it won three. Best Adapted Screenplay. 
Best Film Editing, and Best Original Score. Yes, and this meets our nine seed, Inception, an action movie about a dream heist. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Elliot Page, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and Tom Hardy. Directed and written by Christopher Nolan, it was nominated for eight and it won four. Best Cinematography, Best Sound Editing, Best Sound Mixing, and Best Visual Effects. One, One two, two, three. three. The Social Network. I oh, knew no. this would happen. All right. Again, we like to be brief when we yes. try to decide these. So how do we want to go about this? Do you want to tell me what tipped you towards the social network or what made you feel strongly? I don't want to say tipped. I don't know where you are. And then I'll tell you what made me say Inception. And then I don't know. We'll go from there. We'll go from there. Okay. So yeah, how to begin. The social network I think is excellent. I love the script. I love the acting. And you know, it's another movie about horrible people destroying each other, which is always a fun time. And Inception, I think, is very cool and stylish. But I, you know, I like it, but don't love it. Just generally, I think sort of the structure of it is cool. But the a lot of the interpersonal stuff on the team doesn't work that well for me. So I went with the social network. Fair enough. I love Inception. I think one thing in its favor is we are always talking about original ideas. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the few, I think, truly like original science fiction ideas of this century that has been made into a big blockbuster film. And so I do think it deserves recognition for that because it's such a rare occurrence. I mean, I like Christopher Nolan in general. I, I like the things that he's preoccupied with. And to be honest, I did not like The Social Network. Part of the reason was I just didn't find the stakes particularly compelling. I think the movie's pretty misogynistic. And also there's a person in brown face in this movie, which I think in 2010 is unacceptable. So I don't know. I don't know how to like cross this bridge. I mean, I feel like if you actively hate the social network, we can't put it through to the next round. So let's go ahead and go with yours. All right. I'm fine with that. <laughs> okay. So we move on to our number, our third matchup. Mm-hmm. Okay. Our number three seed. True Grit is a Western about a girl who hires a marshal to track down the man who killed her father. It stars Jeff Bridges, Haley Steinfeld, and Matt Damon. It's directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, and also written by Joel and Ethan Cohen. It's nominated for 10, and it won zero. Damn. Yeah, it's rough. <laughs> Against our number eight seed, The Fighter, a drama about two brothers who are boxers. It stars Mark Wahlberg, Christian Bale, Amy Adams, and Melissa Leo. It was directed by David O. Russell, written by Scott Silver, Paul Tamasey, and Eric Johnson. It was nominated for seven, and it won two. Best Supporting Actor, Christian Bale, and Best Supporting Actress, Melissa Leo. One, One two, three. three. True, True Grit? Grit? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm very close on this one, but. Yeah. All right. That brings us to our number four seed. The King's Speech, mm -hmm. a historical dramedy about King George VI overcoming his stutter. It stars Colin Firth, Jeffrey Rush, and Helena Bonham Carter. It's directed by Tom Hooper, written by David Seidler. It was nominated for 12, and it won four. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Colin Firth, and Best Original Screenplay. And our number seven seed, The Kids Are All Right a dramedy about two adopted kids who contact their birth father. It stars Annette Benning, Julianne Moore, and Mark Ruffalo. Directed by Lisa Cholodenko and written by Lisa Cholodenko and Stuart Blumberg, it was nominated for four, and it won zero. One, One two, three. three. The, the King's, King's Speech. Speech. Good job, The King's Speech. You we made told it you through. we didn't hate you. <laughs> And then our last matchup is the number five seed, Winter's Bone, a drama about a young woman who must track down her wayward father in order to save her family home. It stars Jennifer Lawrence and John Hawks. It was directed by Deborah Granick, written by Deborah Granick and Anne Rossellini. It's nominated for four, and it won zero. And finally, our sixth seed, 127 Hours, a drama based on a true story about Aaron Ralston, who gets his arm trapped by a rock in a canyon. It stars James Franco, directed by Danny Boyle, and written by Danny Boyle and Simon Beaufoy. 
it was nominated for six and it won zero. A lot of zeros out there this time. It's tough. It's tough. It's tough. Okay. Uh, one, one, two, two three. three. Winter's uh, Bone? Yeah. I'm I'm neck and neck on this one. Yeah, you can go with fair. Winter's Bone. You want to just talk about them in this order? Because Hell yeah, I do. Why not? All right. Black Swan. I can do the summary for Black sure. Swan. So Black Swan is about Natalie Portman. She's a ballerina. She works for a company where the star ballerina is about to retire. She's older. And the head, the instructor, what's his name? The director, probably. The director is casting for a new lead for Swan Lake, which is a classic ballet about a woman who gets turned into a swan and falls in love with a prince and the evil wizard is like if you can get this guy to devote himself to you you can be turned back into a lady but then the evil wizard tricks him into falling in love with a different lady it's kind of like the little mermaid i mean a lot of fairy tales like animal transformation fairy tales have the same story beats and then anyway so because he betrayed her by accidentally falling in love with a woman that he thought was her she cannot become a lady again and she commits suicide so tragic story Mm mm-hmm Natalie Portman's character is living with her very sort of controlling mother. She's very sort of repressed. And so she's perfect for the virginal, pure white swan part. But she also has to be able to play the whorish black swan part. And we're just not sure she can do it. In comes Mila Kunis, who is a ballerina from San Francisco who's just transferred. She's a real free spirit. And she has a tattoo, if you can imagine it. it. Basically, the director is trying to get her to tap into her sexuality so that she can play both roles. She does get cast for both roles. And as the film goes along, Natalie Portman is clearly having some kind of breakdown. She's seeing things. She's having hallucinations. And in the end, she's able to perfectly dance the role of the black swan. She's unleashed herself. But part of doing that is also involved her stabbing herself in the stomach. And so maybe at the end she dies or at least she's got to be taken to the hospital. Mm -hmm. That's sort of black swan. It sure is. What'd you think of it? I thought it was fine. <laughs> I didn't feel, honestly, I did not feel particularly strongly about this movie. It's well, like we should say this is the first film you've seen from your arch Darren nemesis, Aronofsky. my Darren arch Aronofsky. nemesis. Exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm really trying to work up some sort of uh, vitriol for Antipathy, Darren. Aronofsky. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, my reaction to it was mostly like, sure. Like, I get what you're trying to do. I see her. She's unreliable. She's seeing things. You don't know what's real. But it's to uh, the extent that it's hard to care about anything that's happening because it's like may or may not be real at any given time in the movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't really care that much about ballet. So like I wasn't inherently interested in the stakes of it. I think her relationship with her mother was interesting, her very controlling mother, Mm -hmm. the stuff with the director trying to like engage her sexually to pull out her, you know, black swan side is sort of like, whatever. Uh, (laughs) She has, you wish she would be friends with Mila Kunis, who seems like totally fine and normal, but even that gets all imaginary and weird. It was just sort of like, okay, that was my reaction to it. Sure. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, this for me definitely falls into the burgeoning category of movies that are what I was worried Whiplash was going to be, which is this like very self-serious exploration of being an artist. Mm -hmm. And at the end, she says, I was perfect. And I think the movie wants us to be like, was it worth it? And I'm like, no. (laughs) I mean, she needs mental health care. Like all the way through, she just, she needs to go see a No one cares if you danced it perfectly. I mean, certainly I don't. You're not striving to really help people. Like maybe if this was all the self-sacrifice and it was saving lives, I'd be like, well, I understand why you feel pressure to do that. You know, you're Oscar Schindler. I get it at the end. You're like, I could have done more. And you're like, I understand. I get it. But this is like, I danced part of a ballet perfectly. And you're like, cool. Good for you. I also thought this was an interesting matchup with Toy Story 3 only because there's a scene where she grabs all of her toys and shuts them down a, a trash chute. And I was <laughs> like, I was like, I was yelling at my TV when she did that. You could donate those. And then I watched Toy Story 3 next and I was really like, you could donate those. Yeah. <laughs> but be careful where you donate them because it's the place true. could be run by someone totally evil. 
It's true. And then, yeah, I mean, I'm with you. Okay, yeah, she's seeing things. I thought some of the horror elements, like the the things that she was seeing got cartoony, like when she goes into her mom's room and all the paintings are waving around. And I was like, this is kind of goofy. It's Mm -hmm. not really scary. Yeah. I mean, I just, the problem was I was never really invested in her as a character. Whether or not she could do the ballet perfectly. Yeah. Yay. Any other thoughts? Oh, I will say early Sebastian Stan sighting. In this oh, movie. yes. I did go. Oh, look, it's Sebastian oh, Stan. And then the other guy was someone I've never seen again. <laughs> yep. But yeah, they, when they go out on the town, they meet some guys. One of them is Sebastian Stan. So that was a fun little highlight. Yeah. <laughs> but other than that, I didn't nice really care for it. Nice to see him. Also always nice to see Winona Ryder. Oh, that's true. Winona Ryder plays the ballerina who's on her way out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she was good. Honestly, like the performances were perfectly fine. That was not yeah. an issue with this movie. Everyone was doing a good job at what they were asked to do. It's just that I was sort of like, I don't really care about what you're trying to say was the problem. So how are you feeling about your nemesis, Darren Aronofsky, right now? Not any better about him. So uh, I should really just work myself into reasons to hate this movie so that I can feed into my narrative about Darren Aronofsky. I will work on that. Okay, good. <laughs> Okay, that brings us to The Social Network. Tell me what happens in The Social Network. So The Social Network is about, ostensibly, the forming of Facebook. And it is told through a couple of lawsuits of people suing Mark Zuckerberg for various amounts of money because of their involvement in the creation of Facebook. So the story is sort of, he breaks up with his girlfriend in college He gets drunk and he's mad about it and he starts posting mean shit about her online and he decides, you know, what would be really fun is if I could dehumanize all of the women on campus at once. And so he goes to what is called the Facebook, which at the time was just a, well, online, but book of pictures of the faces of everyone who go to each of the schools. And so he figures out a way to code it so that he can, you know, mash random girls from their school up against each other and people can vote about who's hotter. And so this becomes very popular and then he gets in a little bit of trouble, but he weathers the storm. A couple of guys on his campus hire him because they he, they hear that he's a great coder to help them develop what they are planning as like a Harvard dating website. And he kind of strings them along a little bit. And while he's doing that, he comes up with the idea for the Facebook, which is a similar thing to what it became, where you sort of have a you know, you put up your face and bio and what you're up to and you can connect with all the people that go to your school. So the drama of it is he has this best friend, Eduardo Saverin, who is his initial backer. And the two of them and their friends are sort of coding this and building the company as it goes. It's getting more and more popular. They're trying to figure out how to monetize it. And so Eduardo wants to do advertising, but Mark meets with Sean Parker, the guy who founded Napster, who is sort of just a man about town in Silicon Valley now because he's had to declare bankruptcy at Napster. And so he meets him and gives him advice and tells him how to run his website and meet with investors and blah, blah, blah. And Mark becomes very enamored with him and ends up eventually the two of them cut Eduardo out just as Facebook becomes very profitable. So that's one of the lawsuits that's happening over the course of the movie, Eduardo suing him because he was one of the founders of Facebook and wants to be paid for it. And then we also have the Winklevoss twins, who are the two guys who tried to hire him to form their website. And they say that actually their website was the real Facebook and he stole the idea from them and has now gone on to create this massively successful company. So they're suing him for whatever amount of money they think they are owed and so the movie is told through like there's deposition scenes and then you know flashbacks of how it is all happening in real time and so then we end up getting to a place at the end where he gets advice that he's going to have to just settle in both of these cases because he cannot go on the stand because he is a horrible person that no jury will like and so he ends up settling with both of the aggrieved parties they tell you that he pays like 65 million to the Winklevosses and they don't tell you how much you pay it to Eduardo and then he is left at the very end looking at his ex-girlfriend's Facebook page and longingly wishing that he was not so alone and that is the social network so you hated it you got to tell me what your thoughts are yeah so I mean this was one of the ones I had not seen before Mm -hmm. and admittedly right the reason I hadn't seen it was I was like this just doesn't seem like a story that's going to be interesting I don't 
care about the founding of Facebook. So Mm -hmm. coming into the film, right, I was like, you got to make me care about this movie. And it just didn't. So I watched this pretty early on in our couple of weeks that we take to watch the movies. And so I've been thinking about it for the couple of weeks to the point that Justin Timberlake popped up in one of my dreams. I'm sure that's that's part of the reason. It has to be, because why else would you be thinking about Justin Timberlake? <laughs> no reason at all. And I, I think it was not a good decision to make this movie as close as they did to the founding of Facebook, because I don't think they understood the implications, the actual real world implications of Facebook. Mm -hmm. And so the motivations that they give the characters, which are largely made up, and that's fine, are wrong. (laughs) Like they're misplaced in terms of what the implications are going to be. The problem with Facebook is not that these people are misogynists. Mm -hmm. The problem with Facebook is the fact that Zuckerberg was able to exploit people's brains to make it so rewarding. And I think that something that's interesting about this movie is I don't think you would walk away from this movie knowing he was a psych major. He wasn't a computer science major in college. He was a psych major. And that's fascinating to Mm -hmm. me. And so, yeah, I think just like the sort of like what are what are the stakes in this movie? The stakes in this movie are their friendship, which we can get back to. And then it's not so much whether or not Facebook happens, but who gets credit for Facebook and who gets to run Facebook. And I just think it's not like Edward Saverin's a good guy. He also is a multi multi billionaire at this point. Right. So the outcome is. Does Eduardo Saverin get to be worth $18 billion or $100 billion? I don't care. That's that's inconsequential. And then he also, like, he fled the country to avoid paying $700 million in capital gains tax. He's also just going to be an awful billionaire running this company. Mm-hmm. And so then, you know, you're left with the relationships. And the Winklevoss twins are also billionaires. Mm-hmm. And so then you're left with the relationship stuff. And it's like... I don't know, man. You've known this guy for less than two years. They're they're midway through their sophomore year of college. Why do you trust him so much? And the way they, they write, don't know him. They haven't known him for two years. They reach out to him because they. No, no. Him. I'm talking about Saverin. Oh, okay. Yeah. Why Saverin and and Zuckerberg? Yes. Yeah. Why is he so loyal to them? And the way that they write the Zuckerberg character, like he has no redeeming qualities. I don't understand how he got that girlfriend to begin with, based on what we see of him. And I don't understand why anyone would be friends with him, much less feel that amount of loyalty, especially after he'd already been betrayed. And then honestly, I think just so much of this plot hinges on people being not clever, but people being stupid. You're going to go into a contract with someone who's already betrayed you for that much money and you're not going to get outside counsel to read it. Holy shit, dude. (laughs) That's like you're so dumb. And like, I understand you could say, well, he's young, but... uh, this is an important lesson for him to learn that he needs to learn that if you're going to enter into a contract for, with someone for like something this big, mm-hmm. don't trust his lawyer. I certainly think that he learned that lesson. <laughs> Good. He should. <laughs> I, and apparently it served him well because, again, now he's worth $18 billion. And so, yeah, like we can get into the other stuff. Like, again, I think this this movie has a real misogyny problem and it's not a case where just the characters are misogynistic. I think the film makes choices that are like the choice with Brenda Song's character to be like, oh, she's crazy. But then they show yeah. us her being crazy. And it's like, so what are you saying? She like, is crazy. Yeah. 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 It's not the character being misogynistic. It's the film deciding to include that for reasons. Like her character isn't necessary to the plot at all. And then at the end, to put into a female character's mouth the idea that he's not really an asshole. He just wants to seem to be. I was like, this is nefarious. This is insidious. Like, to put that into a woman's mouth to be like, you're not actually that bad, Mark. I know you've been a misogynist throughout this whole movie, but I think you're okay as a woman. I'm like, gross. <laughs> and then, yeah, the last part is they cast a white guy to play the Winklevoss's Indian friend. Very strange. They darkened up his skin for it. Like, if you go to his Wikipedia page, it says that his grandmother was part Parsi, which is a ethnicity in India, but he comes from a prominent enough family that you can actually read about his, his background. So his great grandfather was half Indian. Yeah. That's it's not pretty minimal. That's not acceptable. It's it's 2010. They couldn't find an Indian American actor to play that role. I like hard to believe mm-hmm. they couldn't find a, or an Indian actor who was British. Right. Because he the guy's British who can Max do an McGillan. American accent. Yeah. I think they could have if they had tried. I think they could have done it. Mm-hmm. I'm not so, going to argue with that. <laughs> 
I don't know. Again, I, I mean, like, right, the core problem is the stakes just weren't of interest to me. And I think, again, are not the actual stakes of what Facebook has become in the world, which is really sure. a function of when they made the film. And that's just unfortunate. Yeah, I had, a lot, I, had, I had a lot of problems. I was mostly bored, except when I was actively angry at them. <laughs> <laughs> mostly bored, except when I was actively angry. A review from Kelsey. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I think some of those are very valid complaints. Obviously, the brown face is unacceptable. And I completely agree with you. I think one of the biggest problems of it is that Brenda Song character and like having her come be crazy in the movie. I don't understand why they've done that. And you're right that obviously this isn't a reckoning with what Facebook has become because it was 2010 and they didn't understand what Facebook would become. That said, yeah, the stakes are like, who cares if these with this bad guy is rich or this guy is rich, but it's just so deliciously written. Watching them fight each other is great. I love it. <laughs> I think it's delightful to watch all of the horrible people be horrible to each other. And it's just like, I love the dialogue and I think the structure of it is interesting i think they're all just so cartoonishly horrible and they are (laughs) people from silicon valley suck so much (laughs) so i i don't know that works for me and it's not like i'm rooting for one of them to win or one of them to not win but i sort of am like yeah of course it is just these two smart not good people who wreak this sort of havoc on the world so I don't know. The writing and performances really work for me. And I think I love Sorkin's dialogue. I love Fincher's directing. You're right that there are no redeeming qualities to his Mark Zuckerberg, but I think that's fair enough. <laughs> um, yeah, I just don't understand the, how they set up the relationships in light of the way that they've written the character. It doesn't track for me. I mean, yeah, you're sort of like all along, why would Eduardo be friends with this guy? But he's young and stupid. So... I don't know. People are young and stupid and do stupid things. I will say I did enjoy seeing the origin of one of my all-time favorite internet memes, which is Mm. the note-passing scene. I love that meme. It's one of my favorite memes. I looked up a bunch of memes after I watched that, and I was like, this is a great meme. It's very funny. I love it a lot. It's pretty good. Yeah, and you know, I think I realized that this is the first thing I've ever watched that Sorkin wrote. Mm -hmm. This is my first Sorkin. So I'm curious to see as we watch more of his stuff, because I think he wrote Moneyball, too, mm-hmm. and there might be some other and a few good men. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it will be interesting because I don't know which of his more recent stuff is nominated. Well, Moneyball was nominated. I'm pretty sure. So. I'm just thinking of things other than the things that you mentioned. Oh, OK. Yes. For me, Aaron Sorkin is, is always the West Wing, but that won't come up on this podcast. <laughs> No, not nominated for not best nominated picture. for best picture. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I don't have much more to say. I think it's very well written and made and it is a movie about horrible people. So that's not going to work for everybody, to be fair. No. And as we've said before, you know, for me, I can like a horrible people movie if the secondary characters are really well fleshed out and I understand why they maintain the relationships with the horrible people and this failed that hurdle for me all righty the social network let's move on to our next movie the fighter so you and i watched the fighter together Mm -hmm. uh i don't know probably five or six years ago at this point and it was the first boxing movie i ever watched if you can believe it interesting movie to be your first boxing movie yeah now i've seen other boxing movies so wow Coming from a different place. <laughs> yeah, now you've seen Rocky, you've seen Raging, uh, Bull. Raging Bull, yeah. Just those two, but And know. Rocky three or whichever one we watched. Yeah. Was it Rocky Three? It probably was Rocky. And Rocky Three. Yeah. No, I think four is the one with Drago. Rocky. Wait, okay. did we watch the one with Drago? No, we watched the one with Mr. T. Oh right. Oh, and Mr. T's debut film role. <laughs> Yeah, so clearly, you know, I have a much greater background in boxing films now by which mm-hmm. to judge this boxing film. Yes. Okay. So anyway, The Fighter is about a pair of brothers, Mickey and Dickie Eklund. Eklund, Eklund yeah. Eklund. And Dickie Eklund was a pretty successful boxer. He knocked out Sugar Ray Leonard uh, one time. That's he knocked down. He knocked down. He did not okay. knock him out. He didn't even win that fight. 
Okay. <laughs> he just knocked him. He knocked down Sugar Ray Leonard in, in one fight. That's yes. his claim to fame. He's mm-hmm. the pride of Lowell, Massachusetts. And his younger brother, Mickey, is a boxer as well, who's trying to come up in the world. But we're several years past that fight. And Dickie has developed a cocaine addiction. A, a crack cocaine addiction. A crack cocaine addiction. And um, he's a little unreliable as a result. And so Mickey's being managed by his mother and being trained by Dickie. And basically, like, they're not doing a great job. They're not getting him good fights. Again, Dickie's pretty flaky, which is not helpful. He meets a woman at a bar who he, uh, Mickey rather, meets a woman at a bar who he falls in love with. And she's really being like, um, your family might not be doing the best for you. But if you can, you know, maybe break away, things could happen first. So she's sort of supporting him and helping him, you know, clearly see what's going on with him in his life. And so he ends up deciding to go with different representation. He gets a new trainer and a new manager. And sort of at the same time, Dickie's like, you know what, I can I can put money together so that you can train full time and you won't have to switch to new representation. And the way he decides to put money together is by getting his girlfriend to act as a prostitute to seduce men. And then he shows up and poses as a cop. And then he steals the guy's cars or or just tries to rob them and it's like a whole scheme and so he gets caught because you can't do that and he gets arrested and put in prison and this whole time hbo has been making a documentary about him which in dickie's mind is about his comeback but it turns out the documentary is called crack in america and is about his crack addiction and he watches the movie of it in prison and sort of has like a come to jesus moment where he's like oof that's me yeah that's pretty rough Uh So, you know, he detoxes in prison as well. And when he comes out, he he finds that Mickey has moved on, but he's, you know, he's not going to have it. And so he goes and he says goodbye to his crack friends. And then he goes to Mickey's girlfriend. He's like, he needs both of us. And she's like, okay. And then they all get together and they support Mickey at the big fight at the end. And he wins. It's a happy ending. And then they show you the real Mickey and Dickie Eklund, mm-hmm. and Dickie's still kicking. You're like, this yeah. is impressive that he's still around. And a lot of crack. He did so much crack, but he seems to be doing okay in 2010. So yeah. good for him. How do you feel about the fighter? I really like it. It's like a, you know, it's a sports movie, so you get that nice win at the end. I love that. I think that the family relationships are really interesting. There's fun stuff going on with like their mother has so many daughters. <laughs> They're the sons. And then there's like 12 daughters that are also just around in every scene providing. They're like a Greek chorus of comedy backup to everything that's going on in the scenes. And there's a great scene when they get really mad. They don't like Amy Adams is playing Mickey's girlfriend and they don't mm-hmm. like her because she's obviously telling him that they're a bad influence. And so there's one point where they get really mad and they all pile into the car and it's like a clown car of these women going (laughs) (laughs) to go beat up Amy Adams. I think it's funny. I think that the emotional stuff works. I think it's a good time. I think the acting is good. I like the direction. I like it. What do you think of it? I think it's fine. So again, we watched this five or six years ago and I gotta say, I did not remember it super well. Like I was like, I don't know that I could have told you too much about it. So I did not find it to be incredibly memorable at the time. And my sort of sense memory of it was, it was fine. And I feel sort of similarly about it. I mean, I think the performances are good. I think it has sort of a similar third act issue as I had with Silver Linings Playbook where it all sort of wraps up so neatly and so happily and it's like I don't feel like you really addressed many of the problems that you raised in this movie and then there's just like weird little bits I found the inclusion of Dickie's son to be so strange he's like this silent child who is just around sometimes Mm -hmm. he feels like he could be a ghost but he's not he's a real child (laughs) that would be quite the twist (laughs) and you get to the end and Dickie's decided to become to go clean right because mickey had this great opportunity and you're like not for your child ah he barely notices the child yeah we all do (laughs) the kid has no no lines he's just this blonde boy who's around and for a while i was like is that his son is that is Is that that, or is that just some child that he hugs a lot is that one of the daughters 
many daughters? Who's who's? Where does this child? Is that the mom's child? She has a lot of kids. She could have a little one. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and I think at the end too, like they bring the mom along, but I don't think the movie really addresses like how emotionally and also sometimes physically abusive this woman is. Yeah, and so at the end, you're like, yay, happy ending, but you have all these nagging questions in your brain of like. I don't feel like you really. I hope you guys are going to address this further. Any of this, but okay, he won. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. But you know, sometimes I like a happy ending. But I mean, the acting's great. Melissa Leo as the mother is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, other performances were good. And obviously, you know, Christian Bale's always Christian Bailing. But mm-hmm. I think. Mark Wahlberg is the one who never gets enough respect. He's having to play the straight man to all of these people. And like, he's doing a good job. You know, a lot of people don't like Mark Wahlberg. I believe you and I are Mark Wahlberg as an actor boosters. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of Mark Wahlberg. We're on the pro side. That we love. And I hear a lot of people always ragging on Mark Wahlberg, but I'm like, come but on, have guys. you seen? <laughs> <laughs> have you seen Boogie Nights? Have you seen I Heart Huckabees? Have you seen The Happening? He's very bad at it, but in like the, the most perfect way. Yeah, but I mean, uh, the, there is a like a quality to him that's just inherently interesting to watch. I yes. think. but the play, times when he is really good is great casting, right? Like you look yes. at Boogie Nights, you look at I Heart Huckabee's. Even this, I think he doesn't have a huge range, but when he's slotted in, right, slot him into perfect. a perfect role for his specific quality, he mm-hmm. adds so much to the movie. The other guys, <laughs> the Come other on. guys, exactly. It's all about casting. Yeah. Okay. I think that's the fighter. Okay. That brings us to our next film. The kids are all oh, right. right. Okay. So the kids are all right is about we have a family. So Julianne Moore and Annette Benning are a married couple. They have two teenage children, a son and a daughter. And the daughter's just turned 18 and she's about to go off to college. Her brother encourages her, because she is now 18, to reach out to their father, their like sperm donor father, because now that she's an adult, she can reach out and see if he wants to get in contact, because the son really wants to contact him. Yeah, they both have the same father who the sperm was used by the different moms in the couple. So they're half siblings. Correct. So he does talk her into it. The two of them go and meet this guy. And he's this sort of kind of new agey. He runs a restaurant and he has his own garden. And he's very like go with the flow kind of guy who just barely remembered that he even donated this sperm because he was like 19 and in college when it happened. But he is sort of intrigued by the idea of having kids. And so he meets them and he's like, oh, okay, you know, this could be kind of cool. Kind of into it. Like having kids. That's kind of cool. So he ends up getting overly involved in their family basically is the arc yeah, of the movie a way to it. so they tell their moms and the moms are defensive and kind of upset at first because they're like we're your parents why the fuck do you need him basically mm-hmm. but then they're like you know what if you guys really want to meet him then we want to meet him too so he comes over to have dinner with them and annette benning's character in particular is not vibing with him. They have very different sort of philosophies. <laughs> she does not like him at all. Mm-hmm. He's so loosey-goosey and she's this type A doctor. But the kids still want to see him. And Julianne Moore's character, who is the more freewheeling kind of one of the two of them, has been trying to start a landscaping design company. And he, in an effort to sort of be nice and bond, is like, oh, I have a backyard that could use some landscaping design. I can hire you if you want. And so she takes him up on it. Meanwhile, there's some tension in the Julianne Moore and Ed Benning relationship. They've been married a long time. Some things that have built up, some resentments over the course of their relationship are mm-hmm. kind of coming to a head. There's this sort of vibe that Julianne Moore wants to start a business and she thinks Annette Benning doesn't really want her to. Annette Benning is like, well, I'm indulging you by helping you start your business. And there's that sort of thing is going on. Yeah, Julianne Moore has been a stay-at-home parent for most of their marriage, and Annette mm-hmm. Benning has been the breadwinner, and there's that sort of asymmetry in yes, terms of the power of her in being the relationship. Like, I am the breadwinner, so I have power, and Julianne Moore is like, well, you like it that way, because then you get to control all of the decisions, and I'm just here having to do whatever you want, this sort of dynamic. Mm-hmm. So Julianne Moore is working all the time at Mark Ruffalo's house, and there's some sort of chemistry between the two of them. They end up starting an affair. 
the kids are bonding with him and sort of enjoying having him in their life. Everyone's getting closer. Annette Benning feels othered, like he's stealing her family in more ways than she knows. Mm. Uh, and so finally they get to a point where Annette's like, okay, I will try. They go over, they have dinner with him. They actually bond. She and Mark Ruffalo bond and they sing Joni Mitchell together. <laughs> it's quite lovely. And then of course, at this dinner, she finds evidence that Julianne Moore and he have been sleeping together. So that sort of blows everything up. The two of them have a huge fight. Julianne Moore is sleeping on the couch. The kids hear the fight and find out about it. The daughter talks to Mark Ruffalo and is like, I never want to talk to you again. You're the worst. Mm -hmm. And he's like, oh, no, everything's falling apart because I like these kids. But also he's like fallen in love with Julianne Moore and basically yeah. thinks that they're going to be together. <laughs> And she's like, um, I'm gay and you're an idiot. So <laughs> things things don't work out as well for him. He's left in a place at the end where he's like, I really hope that we can still be friends. Like he wants to see his kids. And they're like, yeah, I don't know, maybe someday, maybe. Mm -hmm. And then the family takes the daughter off to college and leaves her there. And you sort of get the sense at the end. The son tells the mothers, like, I really think you guys should stay together because basically, who else would have you? Uh, <laughs> and so you get the sense, like, they're probably going to work it out. Their marriage will survive. Their relationship with the kids are going to be okay. Mark Ruffalo may or may not re-enter the picture at some point in the future. But that's the kids are all right. What did you think of it? Um, I mean, it's all right. <laughs> I found the movie, like, a little unfocused in terms mm -hmm. of the things that it set up and then the things that it resolved. And I found the journey that Mark Ruffalo's character went on strange, I guess. <laughs> I don't, like, the, the, the thing that you referenced where after the fair has happened and like when we meet him, right, he's, he is this sort of freewheeling guy. He's sleeping with one of his employees. He's flirting very heavily with another one of his employees. He's never been married. He, mm -hmm. you know, owns this, rides a motorcycle. He seems to be perfectly content with sleeping with this employee of his and like have like a casual relationship. And then the movie takes place over the course of like a, a month, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. And he, and he meets these kids and he starts having this affair with Julianne Moore. And then he's on the phone with her and he's like, I love you. We can make this work. You you get the kids. Bring, bring them with us. And you're like, this is a huge shift in your idea of what your life is going to be, man. And also like, bring the kids. One of them's an adult. How, yeah. like, <laughs> like they're not small children that you've gotten to know. You've met, you've hung out with them like half a dozen times. I don't know. Something about it was just, this is, this is like, maybe this is his personality. I don't know. I didn't get that sense, yeah. but it's a lot to happen in a, in a month. And I, I just wasn't sure about I it. sort of read that as he has this type of personality where he's like fell in love with the idea of it, right? Like all of a sudden he's like, maybe I'll be a family man. And you're like, you're not. Like if they had actually done it, if she'd been like, sure, let's be together. Like that would not have fucking worked out. Yeah. I think he just, you know, got excited about the idea of it. And is kind of, uh, he blows from thing to thing. That's part of his personality but i mean he's so dumb and short-sighted to not see that he is in a much more vulnerable position than her if she yeah. makes a mistake she's still their mother you know like mm -hmm. it, nothing's going to shake her relationship with those kids and even her relationship with her wife like if they got divorced they'd still always be the co-parents and you know whatever yes. And he's just some fucking guy. Like, they don't owe him shit. It's so easy right. for them to be like, no, we'll never see you again. It was an experiment and it didn't work out. Bye. <laughs> and he yeah. just doesn't see that coming at all, which is, you're an idiot. He's such an idiot. Yeah. And then, like, yeah, there's stuff going on with the kids, which you're like, okay. At the end of this movie, does Laser have no friends anymore? Well, he did seem to only have the one friend who was really horrible. he seems really okay with that. The fact that he <laughs> I now he's going to no make some new friends. friends. He needs new friends. Maybe he has friends that were his friends before he fell in with a bad crowd, and hopefully he can go we back and no hang out idea. with them. No, we have no idea. I mean, it's not like about him. <laughs> he's just, he's like the impetus for all of the 
the setup of the story and then he becomes a pretty minimal part of the well, story. Well, that's why I think I felt like the movie was unfocused because we start on the kids and then the kids become deeply secondary. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, whose story are we following? I think it's that she always wanted to tell a story about this married couple, but struggled with that how to find your way into that when it clearly is the kids are the catalyst for everything that happens. So she sort of just dispenses with that pretty immediately after she yeah. has get into the story yeah i just i i don't know i felt like a no one has any good relationships in this movie like the kids both have friends who they're horrible to each other i'm like a both these kids need to get better friends you know obviously we're seeing the tension in the the marriage the relationship between mark revlo and his employee is first like not great because he's fucking his employee but secondly ends in like a really weird place too And I just, I wanted someone to have, like, I wanted a closer relationship between the kids, maybe. We don't really see too much of their sibling bond. Mm -hmm. It it just, it was a little all over the place for me in the end. And I don't know. It's all right. Yeah. It's all right. (laughs) For me, as a matter of personal taste, and this isn't saying anything specifically about the movie, I... I'm not a huge fan generally of infidelity stories. I'm not, that's yeah. not something that like interests me. And I usually find it more uncomfortable than anything else. Cause I'm just like, Oh, it's so stressful. Like, <laughs> you're don't do that. like, why are you doing this? So that for me, I'm just sort of like, as soon as they, you, you know that they're going to hook up. I'm like, Oh, this is all going to go so wrong. Also, she fires that employee. That that's was fucked awful. up. That guy lost person. his job. She's a bad person. It's 2010. The recession is still happening. I know. I think some of the writing is entertaining. There are good moments. I think the performances are good. I agree with you that it's a little bit unfocused. I end up liking the way that the marriage is sort of resolving at the end. I think that's interesting. Much as I don't like infidelity stories, it is interesting to see one that doesn't just like immediately result in divorce. Like people trying to work Mm -hmm. through it is very interesting, I think. So yeah, I'm sort of in a place where I'm like, yeah, it's all right. (laughs) That's how I feel about it as well. I have a question. What? So Annette Benning finds Julianne Moore's hair in his shower uh-huh. and on his hairbrush, right? Yep. And then she goes into the bedroom and she finds something next to the bed. What was that? I think it's like a hair tie. I also was struggling oh. with what she <laughs> found like, what did next she to find? the bed. But I think it's I think it's something like that, like something that she would have taken off just getting into the bed. I rewound it multiple. I was like pausing. I could not figure out <laughs> what the evidence was. Well, what's interesting is. She so immediately is ready to believe that they're having an affair, which obviously is is because there's tension in their relationship. That's sort Mm -hmm. of why she jumps to it. But to me, it's like if she's been doing lawn work at this guy's house for weeks, like if she had taken a shower there, it probably wouldn't be the craziest thing in the fucking world. And second of all, you don't know that that's her hair. I mean, I guess Julianne Moore has red hair, but like. I thought about that, too. I was like, we know he's a guy who dates freely yeah. like he's clearly a free spirit and it's like i thought too like maybe they should have had julianne moore's hair be like a really unusual mix of colors like if she had dyed hair that was light blue and pink sure. and like green yeah. then you'd be like oh this is very clear. unusual hair <laughs> whereas red hair you're like i understand red hair isn't incredibly common yeah. but other people have red hair yeah she really jumps pretty quickly too they're having an affair yeah but i mean it, it's like you get it because she's fighting with her wife they're in a bad place and she already feels like you know she's literally said to her i feel like he's stealing my family so like she's ready to believe this immediately but i still thought it was like kind of a leap (laughs) a bit of a stretch and then she's like are you straight now and you're like hey buy a razor i know i well part of it that what was making me uncomfortable through is like i'm really ready for horrible biphobia to happen because of the setup of this like anytime there's a lesbian relationship and then a man enters it somebody somewhere is gonna be like saying horrible things about their sexuality and i'm like i don't want this (laughs) i'm not ready for this i don't want it so yeah that she's like are you straight now i'm like oh god yeah oh i did think i want to talk about there's this little thread where the two of them have 70s male gay porn that they watch sometimes Mm -hmm. to get themselves in the mood and there is this great scene oh that line which line oh never mind you you'd say your thing and i'll say your thing uh, yes so there's there's a point where laser and his horrible friend end up finding the porn and they're watching it and the mothers have been like 
thinking maybe Laser was gay because he's spending so much time with his kids. So they sit him down for a talk about like, is there anything you mm-hmm. want to tell us or, or ask us? And he's like, why do you guys watch gay porn? And I actually really appreciated Julianne Moore's speech to him about why. And, the, you know, she's like, you know, human sexuality is very complicated. There's something that we let. She's like very explicitly laying out for him all of the things that they find interesting about it. Mm-hmm. And of course, Annette Bening's character is like, hey, like, why are you saying this to him? But I liked it. I thought it was a lovely moment between mother and son. Yeah, but then there's this interesting line in the movie where she says it's a complaint about lesbian porn. She says, usually in these movies, mm-hmm. they hire two straight women to pretend and the inauthenticity is just unbearable. And then Ebony goes, whoa, that's enough. And you're like, is that a meta commentary about this movie? Because I think Julianne Moore and Annette Benning are both straight women. Uh, yeah, that's lesbians. a good point. I don't know. I guess if we don't have to, if they don't have to pretend to have sex with each other, you can still you know they, you can yeah, still believe I it i don't know i guess i don't know i was like what okay yeah and then there's just some fun stuff in this movie too which makes it very 2010 it opens with a vampire weekend song i literally I like, oh, wrote boy. vampire weekend highly 2010 that's my first oh, I wrote, vampire weekend very 2010 <laughs> and then there's a mention of a yes Although That's that, that dinner with their friends is so funny. <laughs> Annette Benning's character is so abrasive. They're having dinner with the friends and one of the friends is like, oh my God, the Trader Joe's acai or whatever the fuck they're talking about. I buy it and I put it in a smoothie with this and this. And she's just sort of like, oh my God, I can't stand you people. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, says it to their like, face. You should compost. Yeah, composting is good. She's losing her mind. She just decided to take all of her anger out on the environment. And it's like... The environment didn't do anything to you. Yeah. Your your wife and you are having tension and you're mad about it, but you should compost. You should compost. <laughs> and you should eat local. Yeah. All these things are true. Yes. Yeah, it's fine. Agreed. Fine. <laughs> okay. Okay. Last but not least, 127 hours. So this is a true story or based on a true story about this guy named Aaron Ralston who is a guy who likes to go out into nature, into national parks by himself, go adventuring. Mm-hmm. He's like a canyoner or something. There's some word for yeah. it. Yeah. Canyoneer. There you go. He goes a canyoning. <laughs> he meets some girls while he's out there and they go on a little adventure for a little while. And then he says goodbye to these girls. And uh, within a, just a few minutes of saying goodbye to these women, he falls down a little crevasse and his arm gets crushed by a rock against the crevasse and he cannot free himself i don't think he has a cell phone or at least there's no cell reception he can't contact anyone the girls are away he is stuck in this crevasse his arm is trapped and we follow him for 127 hours as he tries to free himself from this crevasse and get more and more dehydrated and more and more starved and in the end he cuts off his own arm with a very dull knife. Oof. And very luckily, he reaches some people before he bleeds to death and he is rescued. Mm-hmm. And that, that's all that really happens. Yeah. I mean, in this it's movie, it was 127 hours. It's right there on the tin, you know? Yeah. Yeah. What do you, what do you think? I really like it. I think it's. I mean, James Franco is carrying a lot on his back here, obviously, and I think he does a mm-hmm. really good job. I like Danny Boyle's direction. It's stylish. I think they sort of keep it fun and light in ways that are not easy to do <laughs> in a movie like this. And it's this is one of those genre of movies of like, you know, human hubris in the face of nature, right? Where they've gone out mm-hmm. and done something incredibly stupid and then pay the price for it. And generally, that's a thing that I don't love. I've <laughs> told you multiple times about various movies where I'm just like, these people are so yeah. stupid. And it makes me angry the whole way through. And a thing that I appreciate about this is throughout the movie, he's like, God damn, I'm so stupid. <laughs> like he has a lot, a lot of his thoughts as he's there are like, and I almost I like I ignored a call from my mother and I didn't tell her where I was going. And then I left mm-hmm. my work and I didn't tell my coworker where he was going after he asked me. <laughs> he's just mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. all the way mm-hmm. through, like, wow, I am really reevaluating my decisions. <laughs> And I won't be doing this again if I ever get out of here. And there's sort of stuff he's doing where he has a camera, which is one of the devices they're using to sort of have him still be talking the whole time. Right. And he like at one point is pretending to shoot a late night talk show where he's interviewing himself. And that's kind of fun. And he's having these various flashbacks to things in his life and thinking about it. I think it's well shot. 
And by the time he finally gets to cut his arm off, you're like, hell yeah, we did it. <laughs> like, we made it out there, we buddy. made it out of there. So I think it is effective at what it's trying to do. And I think it's pretty good. What do you think of it? So this was my first time watching this one. I will admit I was not looking forward to it just because... You knew what it was about? Yikes. <laughs> and while I, I don't think I can say I enjoyed the process of watching this movie, because mm-hmm. the whole time you're just like... This is so bad. It's so bad. I do think it's good. I think it's really well done. I think Danny Boyle's direction keeps it sort of energetic and engaging because it could just be a staring at a guy in a crevasse and I don't know. That would be harder, right? Yeah. And not particularly entertaining. Yes. I think James Franco is very good in it Mm -hmm. as well, right? Again, like you said, I mean, we're really on him the whole time so he has to kind of sell the whole thing yeah i really enjoyed the bit where he was interviewing himself i think that is probably like the best part of the movie it's really good but you know in the end it's it's a movie about you know as they say in everything ever once we're all useless alone you can't you can't just do things on your own you Mm -hmm. need community right Mm -hmm. i know you want to go out and adventuring but you got to tell people where you are and it's nice that he was able to find people who were able to save him when when he he was in trouble like when he at the very end when he gets out and he first Mm -hmm. sees people and they're like running over i was tearing up because that that moment of humanity coming like seeing people again for the first time in so long i was like oh this is amazing (laughs) and then there's like they give him some water and then a couple of the people who run off and find another person then the new people they find give him more water and you're just like yeah man you need community okay this is why we all don't live by ourselves in nature Mm -hmm. because sometimes you need help yeah and then at the very end, you get a little postscript where you see the real, real Aaron Ralston, and he ended mm-hmm. up meeting his wife shortly after this. And now the the end of it is basically like, and he never goes anywhere without telling someone where he's going. <laughs> Which is honestly, and just good practice. Yeah. I think it's good. I mean, it's for a movie that is about such a harrowing topic, they keep in enough sort of humor and pace to keep you going. There's interest. I really like how they handle the sort of emotional peaks and valleys of the experience mm-hmm. where it's like, you know, at first he sort of can't believe this has happened. Like he falls in and he's just stunned silence and he's like, this is well, insane. Yeah. <laughs> like, how is this possible? And then as time goes on, there's sort of, there'll be times where he is working. He, he's trying to keep himself going the whole time. He's got a little knife and he's trying to chip away at the stone, basically just to keep himself yeah. occupied the whole way through. So he's like working, working, working. And then there'll be a time of, you know, despair where all he can think about is the fact that he's going to die here. And then, you know, something will happen and he's like, okay, back to work. <laughs> like you have to mm-hmm. just sort of, I think tonally the shifts are really interesting and keep the movie moving. And I imagine yeah. it feels very true to what that would be like, you know, I got to work. I got to work. I got to keep focused. Oh, this is horrible. I'm going to die here. No, don't think about it. I got to do this thing. Yeah. And as, as stupid as he is, and as much as he realizes he's stupid, yeah. right, you are watching someone try to problem solve at least, right, well, the whole time. I and that's helpful, too. love – he's an engineer, and I love mm-hmm. the scene when he first is like, okay, remember you're an engineer. And he, like, and he takes, takes out, out all of his, all of his I, things. All of his yes. belongings. He catalogs everything he has in the backpack, and he's like, what could I use yeah. this for? He sets them all out very logically, and you're like, okay, use your in- human ingenuity. <laughs> figure yes. out how to get out of this and so that sort of keeps you going too because you're not just watching this idiot guy like sit there and not know what the fuck to do he's at least right. smart and trying to figure he's it out trying to problem solve and right. you're like okay he's working gotcha. on it he's really trying every time he thinks he gets somewhere like he, he'll spend hours and hours trying to work up like a pulley system and you're like yes it's gonna yeah. work it's gonna work and then like the rope's too yeah. slack and he can't make it work and you're like oh, God. right <laughs> I think they said at the end they needed like 13 men and whatever else to move the boulder out of the way so they could free his arm and they recovered his arm. And I'm like, yeah, you weren't really going to be able to figure this out. But you were trying and and that was good. And it's important to keep trying because that's how you stay going. You need Mm -hmm. hope. But it's so interesting too because I had seen this already and I couldn't Mm -hmm. remember if he waits and waits until, you know, 126 hours in and then finally is like, fuck it, I got to cut my arm off. And that's not how it works. He sort of early on is figuring out, like, I found a thing that could be a tourniquet. I could I could cut it, but his fucking knife is so dull, he can't even make it <laughs> scratch his skin. And so it's yeah. 
he finally gets to a place where he is able to make it happen. And it feels even more like a relief because it's something he's known he's going to need to do for quite some time. And yeah. he just like can't fucking make it happen. And finally being able to do it. Although the scene where he cuts his arm off is under, like unsurprisingly it's rough. Uh, rough to watch. Yes, it's rough. A lot of rough stuff in this. There thing. is. But it's a very well made movie. <laughs> well done, Danny Boyle. I love that the very beginning of it credits might still be rolling but the very beginning of it is masses of humanity there's all these shots of various crowded cities and people at huge events and it's just this great contrast to what will eventually be yeah and they show those again they show those again at the end and you're like okay i understand now the content i thought at the beginning there were were, he was just showing us a lot of arms because it's like a lot of people doing the (laughs) way that's funny he's like (laughs) Think of arms. Yeah. <laughs> like, I got you. No, but it is. It's, you know, this, again, it's this idea that, yeah, society is a lot, but there is value in it. Mm-hmm. We really cannot do it alone. No, it's tough. Mm-hmm. And there is just this delicious irony to the fact that he just left the girls and they make it seem like he's five minutes away from where these people are. And he's yeah. like crying out. And it's like, they can't hear you, bro. Mm-hmm, they can't. Oh. They're gone. The gone. Yeah. Okay. Well, those are our five losers. Brings us to our mini conclusion where mm-hmm. we pick the best of the worst mm-hmm. and the worst of the worst. Mm-hmm. What are your What are your choices? I think my best of the worst is the social network, and my mm-hmm. worst of the worst is probably Black Swan. My nemesis okay. is film. <laughs> Excellent choice. Thank you. <laughs> Checks out. I think for me, the best, the worst is 127 hours, which I'm shocked by. But I'm glad. I like when a movie surprises you in a good way. Yeah. And I think my worst of the worst is probably the social network. There you go. So what are we talking about next time? Next time, we're talking about more of this. We'll get to our winners from this Academy Awards. So mm-hmm. stay tuned. In the meantime comments questions concerns please reach out to us at oscarswrongpod at gmail.com we are on twitter instagram and letterboxd at oscarswrongpod check out our website oscarswrongpod.com if you're enjoying the podcast please tell a friend leave us a review and subscribe new episodes come out every other friday at six o'clock eastern wherever you get your podcasts 